0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios, and of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Christopher Swift. Christopher is a partner in Foley's Government Enforcement Defense and Investigations Practice Group with a focus on national security and international law. And in non-coronavirus times, Chris splits his time between Foley's New York and D.C. offices. In general, many may merely describe Chris as a white-collar lawyer, but I say that that description is not good enough. It simply does not capture what an interesting and unique practice he has. You see, if the FBI shows up at a client's door, Christopher Swift is the lawyer they call. And they would call him because, oh, I don't know, the FBI says that parts from their manufacturing were found at the site of an Iranian missile strike. Now, the only thing that may be more interesting than Chris's day-to-day practice is the path that led him there. I can't begin to summarize all the remarkable things that he mentions, but they include things like advice from a Supreme Court justice, a White House internship where he was able to do some speech writing for Clinton and Gore. They include him getting his JD and his PhD from Georgetown and Cambridge at the same time over a five-year period. Chris has a really understated delivery that I think can almost make it hard to hear just remarkable how his path is. But if you listen closely, I think you'll be just like me. And at some point I even said to him, Chris, my brain is unable to compute the things you're saying to me right now. But I hope what you take from this is a lot of the wisdom that Chris provides that I think is useful to anyone, but is particularly useful to anyone who's aspiring to have an international legal practice. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Let's just jump right in and have you do your professional introduction.
1: Thank you, Alexis. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. So I'm a partner in Foley's Washington, D.C. office. I also spent some time in the New York office pre-pandemic, so I'm sort of dual-added. I'm in the white-collar group, and I am a national security lawyer. So my practice day-to-day looks like what would happen if you took a Tom Clancy novel and a John Grisham novel and you squished them together and sort of an unusual practice for white-collar, but a pretty interesting practice because we get to deal with a lot of international issues and a lot of very complex government enforcement issues. It's interesting work, a little bit different from what most litigators at Foley do, but something that I'm happy to talk more about if you're interested.
0: I'm definitely interested, and I think describing one's practice as the intersection between a Tom Clancy spy novel and a John Grisham legal thriller is perhaps one of the most interesting ways to describe a practice, but I'm going to drive listeners crazy. And so instead of just jumping to that, let's not, let's talk a little bit about you and how it is you came to have this practice. So everybody who's listening, you're going to have to wait to know what exactly he means. But so Chris, take me to the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. My family's been in New England since 1620 when they got off the boat. So we've been here for a very, very long time. And my family's very much small town, rural New England, town meeting, you know, four distinct seasons of the year, summer, a glorious autumn, a bitterly cold winter, and then this this sort of gray period full of bugs before the summer begins. So I grew up in a place that was pretty homogeneous you know, ethnically and culturally, but where there were really, really deep roots going back to before the founding of the country.
0: And what's the town called? Did you mention it or did I miss it?
1: Yeah, it's a town called Hollis. It's in Southern New Hampshire near the Massachusetts border. It's a farming town. So if you want to go to a place that has family-run farms with apple orchards and pick your own pumpkin and that sort of thing, it's very much in that vein. It's sort of the picture-perfect New England town with the white church, And the town green and the town hall and all the beautiful 300-year-old houses around it.
0: It's where all the Hallmark movies, they have sets that look like that.
1: (laughs) It is just like that, only the Hallmark movies will always have sort of some nice cafe where, you know, the female protagonist and the male protagonist can sort of run into each other and spill coffee on one another or they can meet and sort of talk with the supporting actor about their Christmas, feelings. And it's or Christmas whatever. time.
0: It's the holidays yeah. when that happens,
1: yes. We didn't have that cafe. Okay. We had one stoplight. We didn't have anything quite that interesting. But it, it was a true farming town and a true old, old New England sort of town.
0: Well, yeah, you mentioned 1620 meaning and the boat meaning the Mayflower. Or could you just elaborate a little bit?
1: Yeah, my people came on the Mayflower. And we have eight members or eight ancestors that were on that particular boat, including the only individual who settled at both Jamestown in Virginia and Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. And that individual got kicked out of Jamestown and then had to go back to the United Kingdom and then really couldn't hang around the United Kingdom because he was such a rabble rouser. And so signed up with the Pilgrims as a non-Pilgrim To go with them. He was one of the travelers, one of the folks who wasn't one of the religious exiles from what was going on in England with the tensions between the Puritans and the the Anglican Church. He was a proper Anglican, but he was also a real piece of work, and he came along with them to sort of keep them safe and show them how to survive in the new country. And so my family in one form or the other has been in the United States since 1608, or what became the United States, starting in 1608, and many of them sort of were in that first wave of pre independence settlement. We have family that fought in the revolution and every war since. And we're just that kind of old Yankee small town family. And that's how we grew up.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And I will resist the urge to go off on a long aside that could last longer than this podcast to hear more about that. And we will get back to Chris growing up in Hollis and we will eventually get to, you have a, a really amazing just academic career and we will get there. But tell me a little bit about life growing up there for you. What were you interested in? And then eventually, how did you end up on this path that you're on? Huge, sorry, really broad question, but just start, start telling me more about yourself.
1: Yeah, so there are basically three fundamentals growing up in a town that small. The first is you have a really strong sense of community, but everyone's in your business all the time. Right. So there's that tension between having a having a sense of place, but then your neighbors are sort of on top of you. So you find in small towns in, in New England that there's and you see this all over small rural towns in New England a real strong desire to, to get the hell out of Dodge, mm-hmm. see the wider world. And a lot of people do that through the military. And I came up through scouts like a lot of kids did in our town because we can we had these really sort of strong community institutions and Boy Scouts was a huge part of growing up in that community and being a part of that community. And we had some really fascinating leaders and we had guys who were former military officers, Vietnam era military officers. We had some really interesting folks who were test pilots, but who had all sort of come home after doing interesting things in the world. And we had one gentleman who worked for the intelligence community during the height of the cold war. And as the cold war started to wind down, he came home too. And so we had this very small town that was very, very parochial on the one hand. But then if you looked at my scout leaders, you know, these are all people who had deep roots in this very parochial colonial era town, but who also had these amazing international experiences. And the things that had sort of formed their character and formed their profession and and formed their outlook on the world all involved that process of of the departure and the return. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you look at Joseph Campbell's the hero, hero cycle,
0: yep, the yeah, hero, it's
1: hero with a thousand faces, that whole departure, transformation, return was a really big part of how these guys, you know, grew up as men. And it was clear to me that as much as I loved where I was from, I really had to go someplace else in order to appreciate it and in order to be worthy of doing something there. The other two things that were really important growing up were My family was education first, education last. We might be wearing, you know, last year's clothes, but we went to the very best school my parents could afford. And that was, that was it. Like education was the thing that took my family off the farm, you know, a generation ago. And it was the thing that distinguished, you know, where my family is now from where it was two or three generations ago. So that was always the primary investment. And then the third thing was, you know, if you grow up in a place that has those four distinct seasons and that is rural and where you can see the stars at night and the bear wanders through your backyard, you really get a connection to being outside and the importance of being outside. And as a as a younger person, being able to go out the front door and disappear into the forest for the entire day, or being able to drive an hour or two away and be in the mountains, or drive an hour away and be at the ocean, or drive an hour in the we- hour. And, you know, be in downtown Boston. It's a, it's a really remarkable part of the world where all of the things that sort of make you a well-rounded person, you know, in terms of uh, physical life, not just a spiritual, intellectual life, are all not that far away. Uh, and that was one of the special things about growing up there. It was, however, very homogenous. If you were Jewish, you were different.
0: Right. Everybody. So everybody looks the same. And but as everything you described, that type of exposure to those who had left and returned, definitely planting some seeds. I could see for your, uh, you know, perhaps interest in the broader planet. Should I say?
1: And so those folks also brought some values that were not parochial with them, based on their lived experience. And I always felt like those values were my values, but I had no idea like how to situate that stuff in the world that I saw around me. And so that's another reason why it was so important to leave Yeah, to to understand what that meant and how to interact with it.
0: And let's fast forward to that leaving because, and you're gonna have to correct me here. But so what I see when I pull you up on LinkedIn, I see Dartmouth for undergrad. I see Cambridge for grad school, perhaps a master's. I see JD at Georgetown. And then I see a PhD at Cambridge. That's right. Walk me through that. That is a lot of school. That is more school than most lawyers at large law firms have.
1: (laughs) That is a lot of school.
0: So, fast forward to Dartmouth. Did you know what you wanted to do there? Did you know you had all of the school ahead of of you? Walk me through through all of that.
1: Yeah, so I went to Dartmouth thinking I was going to come out of Dartmouth as the very best history teacher and go and teach high school level history. You know, maybe at a private school and maybe be the rowing coach and go hiking on the weekends and basically, you know, get back into the bubble you know, when you're 18, that's a pretty exciting option. You know, I looked at going to other schools, but that desire to stay sort of connected to the the place that is New England was very strong with me at that particular point in life. Um, but then, you know, you get into a, a school like Dartmouth and, you know, everyone's from someplace else except for you and the eight other kids from New Hampshire and the six other kids from Vermont across the river and at the time I had a very strong New England accent and I got there and the folks from New York and Los Angeles and the greater Washington area and New Jersey and all sort of the the Wall Street crowd you know the future masters of the universe uh, those folks thought I was the help not a classmate
0: interesting
1: because of my accent and one of the things I had to learn as an undergraduate at Dartmouth was how to change how I spoke in order to accommodate people's expectations and one of the other things i learned when i was at dartmouth was you know i was on the 30 to 40 hour week working in the dining hall or working in the student union or working some uh work study job so on the one hand i I came from a, a family that you know had been here forever and that sort of had that picture perfect rural small town you know new england life but on the other hand i had to work full time when i was in college to keep to pay rent, to pay for food, to pay for books, to pay part of my tuition. And so I fell in in college with not just, you know, folks who were like me, through the rowing team or through some of the other activities I was involved in, like student government, but I also fell in with all the folks who were coming from someplace else, who the people who were coming from wealthier backgrounds treated like the help or sort of looked at as the help.
0: So you're running into those those kind of, those class dynamics essentially
1: so that because the the class dynamics were sort of apparent as they all are at all elite schools from the very beginning they also brought in some racial and ethnic dynamics as well Uh, and so when i look at you know who are my friends on facebook from dartmouth you know more than 20 years later a lot of them are friends from my fraternity house and from you know rowing and from student government and the rest but there is a ton of folks who are very diverse and we worked together. Mm-hmm. Right. We were all making money to pay for books and food and all the other stuff we had to pay for. And so when I look at my entree to people from the African American community or folks who were from the Latinx community, or folks from the Native American community, my exposure to that their and their them and their lived experience and how it was different from mine was because we were cleaning the floor in the dining hall together, or because we were opening the bar at the student union together or setting up uh you know speakers and lights and stuff for presentation whenever a, a traveling band came through you know we're always on the, all of us were always on the hustle trying to make a little bit of extra money to keep the bills down and that was a real big part of that going away and trying to get into where where does this you know cosmopolitan outlook come from in such a communitarian community like, where, where did these folks pick up that stuff? And for, you know, for a lot of the guys I grew up with and a lot of the folks that I knew through scouts who were, you know, ahead of us, the military was their experience. For me, it was, you know, being a work-study kid at Dartmouth.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting on, I don't know what number episode of the podcast he is, but an associate at Foley who was in the Air Force prior to becoming an attorney, talked a bit about that, having grown up in the suburbs of Chicago in a relatively homogenous community. And it wasn't until he joined or entered the Air Force that there were so many different kinds of people that he was exposed to. And I think it's interesting for you to share that story because, you know, frankly, like looking at your background, someone thinks Dartmouth, you know, you're not necessarily thinking that's where someone would go to get this exposure. But as you said, because of the places and what you were doing where you would would overlap. And I would love to talk forever about this given what I do at Foley, but I'm going to push you forward too.
1: Yeah, it's the intersectionality between some of the class issues and how they played out in day-to-day life with some of the race issues were really fast. I mean, like looking back at it now as a proper political scientist and being able to sort of have language about how to describe that and describe what was going on. And we didn't think of ourselves as being intersectional in any way. We thought of ourselves as, oh, my God, we, you know, every one of us is an outlier from the mainstream in one fashion or the other. For me, it was I didn't have as much money as most of the folks that looked like me and for the other folks it was oh my god they just dropped me off in a you know a small town in the middle of the woods in northern new hampshire and said this will be college and this place is as white as it can possibly be yeah, and i'm be. the only person who looks like I'm me the yes. only person that looks like me and it was really interesting how we all sort of built relationships and and coalitions around issues not just through student government or through um some of the political stuff that I was doing at that phase in my life, but also in terms of problems we were trying to solve on campus, like who had access to what kinds of opportunities or what kinds of things were going to be taught by the faculty or when we thought about community service, what did community service look like?
0: Well, so, and the same issues that we see ourselves grappling with now, you know, as a country, the same stuff, but with in the Dartmouth campus, but I'm going to push you forward on your path because we're only now talking about your experience at Dartmouth. And as you said, you went in thinking you wanted to become the best history teacher that you could become, but you did not stop there. Or maybe you were continuing on that path. Tell me more.
1: I got sucked into so New Hampshire, as you know, is the first in the nation primary, and so I got sucked into the '94 midterm election, and then I got sucked into the 1996 general election. And I was working on election stuff until, I don't know, I, I worked every election between 94 and 2004, either in a volunteer capacity or some other capacity. And sort of midway through my time at Dartmouth, I was asked to take a pretty big role with the Clinton Gore campaign field organizing in New Hampshire for the primary and then also for the general. And that unexpectedly turned into a White House internship, which unexpectedly turned into the opportunity to write some speeches from Mr. Gore and Mr. Clinton. And as a 21-year-old, that had a big impression on me. And so when I left Dartmouth, I realized that, you know, the history teacher thing can wait. I'm going to go see if I can make some history before I try to go and teach it. Around about the same time, I was helping the government department at Dartmouth put together a conference on, I mean, the Soviet Union had just fallen apart. And Everyone was trying to figure out where was Russia gonna go and how was Russia gonna reform? And this may sound completely random, but we put together a conference with the Supreme Court justices that were assuming control of the highest court in Russia and Justice David Souter, who was a New Hampshire native and was at the time serving on the Supreme Court. And he was chairing this conference that we put together at Dartmouth, looking at judicial reform and transformation in post-Soviet Russia. And so we had this big old conference, and I think I was a third year. I was about to go down to the White House for my internship, and I had about half an hour with Justice Souter walking back to his. He used to drive this old Woody station wagon. Wow! After the conference, and you know, and he was really obsessed with you know how is Russia going to fix this stuff and international legal exchange, and you know, he, he had another example of this person from this very parochial background with a very international outlook. And I asked him, you know, Justice Souter, what do you, you know, when you were my age, you know, if you were thinking about law school or grad school, what would you do? And he said, well, I probably, knowing what I know now, I probably would have gone and gotten a PhD instead of a law degree. And I was shocked by that. And he explained why. And he, he said his biggest concern about the legal profession was the way that it was turning into a business degree rather than being something more akin to what you know, a physician or a surgeon would do where it's really, you know, client focused, a service focused. And he was pretty preoccupied with that. And I, I also asked, you know, so if you were someone who didn't know which direction you wanted to take, and both of those directions were appealing to you, what would you do? And he said, I would figure out what I was good at, and then figure out whether the law made sense as a way of amplifying that or explaining and helping you understand that. And so I put the law on the back burner, and I went back to Washington and started working for a think tank called the Center for Strategic and International Studies. NATO enlargement was a big deal at the time. Post-Soviet consolidation was a big deal at the time. European Union integration and the trade and economic activity was a big deal at the time. China was starting to, you know, was starting on its its rise. And somebody figured out I could write, and then somebody put me in as the aide-de-camp to a guy named... Uh, Speaking of Brzezinski, who was President Carter's National Security Advisor, and I worked for him as his right-hand man for several years, doing research, you know, getting congressional testimony together, running, you know, doing all kinds of drug deals behind the scenes, and I don't mean this literally, but sort of making things happen behind the the scenes, and we'd have days where I'd be in the office and I'd pick up the phone and it would be Senator Kennedy and You know, I'd say, okay, Senator, yes, I'll get him for you. And we would advise Senator Kennedy on an issue. And then an hour later, Senator McCain would call and we'd advise them on the same issue. We had events. I remember the first foreign minister I ever met was the French foreign minister. And, you know, it was me and Dr. Brzezinski and the French foreign minister and his assistant in the office for three hours talking about NATO enlargement. And as a 23-year-old, that's amazing. There's not a better education in foreign affairs.
0: Well, And by the way, as you already said, but before this, you'd had Supreme Court Justice Souter give you his opinion on your professional path. You'd had the opportunity to write speeches for Clinton and Gore. And then we we started off with the Mayflower. So there's a, a bunch of touch points yeah, there, you hit on. There's <laughs> some amazing. fun stuff
1: in here, yeah, but the, very
0: much so. The thing
1: that's really important is like the opportunity to talk to Justice Souter or the opportunity to write a speech or the opportunity to work with dr brzezinski a lot of that was asking the right question and then working really really hard it was not i knew somebody or somebody knew somebody and would set me up it was how can i help you solve your problem Mm -hmm. and if we get back to sort of the practice of law very briefly before moving through the rest of the stuff i know you want to cover a huge part of being a good lawyer regardless of what level you're at is listening to the other person, letting them tell their story, and then asking how can I help you solve your problem? What is your problem? What are the elements of it? What's the story behind it? And then how can I help you fix it? And that's very different from thinking you have a goal and an objective and you're going to go out and find, fix, and destroy that objective. Opportunities like that develop when you combine a willingness to listen and learn with just a willingness to work harder than everybody else around you.
0: That's perfect. There's absolutely nothing I could add to that, but I hope everyone listening really heard you because that was major wisdom that you just shared. So tell me, maybe we can do, and I don't know if it's possible, but that like three to five minute version of the, then why did you go back? Why did you go to Cambridge? And then why Georgetown? And I would say why the PhD, but maybe because Justice Souter told you to, but please elaborate.
1: (laughs) No, no, it was so, my grades coming out of Dartmouth were not the greatest because in part because I was working thirty to forty hours a week to make rent. And so, I did not have amazing grades coming out of undergrad. they were they were respectable. But you know, with some of the stuff I was doing with Dr. Brzezinski involved a lot of behind the scenes trying to solve problems in the world or trying to get people out of bad places when they were threatened. And so, Whether we were doing the high politics or we were doing the human rights stuff, it was all part of a continuum, right? It all ran together. And so at one point I was, I left CSIS and went over to Freedom House to run a program on human rights in Russia. And by virtue of the work we were doing on human rights in Russia, I had the opportunity to go and lecture at Oxford and Cambridge and the, the University of London and a few other places because we were doing some interesting stuff and it was a pretty hot topic at the time. And when I was in Cambridge, I sort of, you know, showed up, gave my presentation and for the presentation, met with the faculty and said, so what does it take to get into a place like this? And they said, well, you need to have a three nine or above from an Ivy League university or an equivalently equivalent university. And I said, well, I have a three four. And they said, well, that's very nice. We'll look forward to your presentation. (laughs) And then I finished the presentation and we had such a good time that they came up afterwards and they said, well, we look forward to seeing your application. And so I applied and I applied to law school at the same time. And I got into the lowest ranked law school because, again, my of that I applied to, which wound up being Georgetown, because, again, my undergraduate grades were not phenomenal and uh, waitlisted at Columbia. And then Cambridge sent me a letter and the letter said, congratulations, you've been rejected. And so I got a rejection letter from Cambridge. I got a rejection letter from Oxford, LSE, Harvard, all the, you know, Georgetown, all the graduate programs i applied for. I remember coming home and making a cup of coffee and the phone rings and it's the faculty at Cambridge and they say, congratulations. And I said, you just sent me a rejection letter. What the hell is wrong with you people? Why are you calling to congratulate me? And they said, oh, that's fine. We had to reject you from that program because you applied for the wrong one. Oh, we're actually putting you in this program instead.
0: (laughs) That's hysterical.
1: (laughs) Do you think you can you can be here in September? And that was it. Uh, There was nothing that was going to keep me away from that place.
0: What was the program?
1: So I had applied for a one year master's and they wanted me, which is predominantly a taught course. And they wanted me to apply to the two year master's, which was a research driven course. And then I got there, and terrorism was the hot issue, and I was talking to my advisor about, you know, let's think about different ways of evaluating what's happening in the war on terror. And he said, well, you're never going to have an answer to these questions until you go to Afghanistan and ask the locals. So I got on a plane, and I flew to Afghanistan, and I spent five weeks running around in Afghanistan by myself with a bunch of Afghans asking The locals, how the Taliban and local tribal groups that supported the Taliban interfaced with Al-Qaeda, came back with my mind completely blown because what we were seeing in the news, what was happening on the ground, weren't the same. A really good example of ask a question and let people tell their stories Mm -hmm. because people really didn't feel like their story was getting out. And then that field research turned into the opportunity to do a PhD. At that point, Georgetown came knocking and I asked Georgetown if I could do the evening program rather than the full-time program so I could maintain my PhD in Cambridge. And then I went to the faculty in Cambridge and said, can you move me from the three-year track for the PhD to the five-year track that they have for diplomats and military officers? And they did. And so in five years, we cracked out JD and a PhD in two different countries.
0: At the same time.
1: At the same time. And that gets back to that working just really hard.
0: And I know it's the night program, so the class schedule is a bit spread out, stretched out, whatever the right term is. But still, that's not nothing. What you just said, right? That that's a lot.
1: Yeah, it was a lot, and you know, we kind of did fun things like picked up a job at the Treasury Department, doing financial you know, terrorism finance, and running around the world with the FBI and the CIA and others to sort of seize terrorist assets around the world and take their money and their toys off the, off the battlefield. So they couldn't do it and met a girl and got married along the way. I mean, it's my my wife refers to it as the five-year plan. That whole period, I refer to it as the swirling vortex of pain.
0: Okay. I was going to say my brain is like unable to compute the things you're saying
1: right now. (laughs) Yeah. We, we had a pretty interesting go, but what it did is all of that uncertainty and having to take two completely different areas right the law and political science and sort of find a practical way to marry them up so that each each hand was washing the other or each hand was strengthening the other you know if you if you take something alexis and you grab onto it with one hand you have only the force in that one hand but if you use both hands simultaneously you actually get more strength and stability on your ability to hold something. Yeah. Right, It's more than just the sum of the strength. It's more than the sum of each individual hand. I, I think it's called some sort of sympathetic or whatever. There's a medical term for it. But it's that same idea. If you can take different things that reinforce each other and inform each other, and you can really dig into those things, not just academically, but professionally, and then go and implement it. I mean, Treasury brought me on because they needed somebody who'd been to Afghanistan. And somebody who knew how to trace, you know, the tribal linkages through various things to figure out where the money and the bad guys were. And we had a tremendous amount of fun.
0: That's amazing. And I have to pause for one second. Okay. So you live in DC while doing this?
1: Between DC and Cambridge. Yeah.
0: Okay. And then also, as you mentioned, you're in both of these programs, and this is the Office of Foreign Assets Control.
1: Yeah. So as you, as one of the things we were able to do is we front loaded a lot of the legal classes into the first couple years. And so over that four or five-year period, we did a lot of the heavy-duty legal work up front and then a lot of the heavy-duty PhD writing, dissertation writing toward the mm-hmm. end. And so we were able to sort of maintain the same burn rate across a five-year period. It's just the task load shifted.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I'm so glad I pro- I pulled your linked up to help me follow the story, and I encourage listeners to go, go look at it. But I'm realizing... So you're doing the PhD in law school simultaneously. You have a, a job at the Treasury Department, but you finish the JD before you finish the PhD. That's right. That's right. And so you then start as an associate while still doing your PhD.
1: While still wrapping up the PhD. Yep. And then that was a little insane. But at that particular time, we had the 2008-2009 recession, or mm-hmm. we were just starting to come out of the recession. So the whole legal community went through a huge transformation at that time, became much more buyer centric rather than seller centric or client centric rather than firm centric. So, you know, one of the risks with being an associate in a big law law firm is a lot of big law firms look at associates as disposable assets, right? There's someone who's going to be there for two or three years and they're going to get out right. of the law and never come back. And it would have been very easy to become one of those people. It's just that at the same time that all of that stuff was happening, the U.S. government started doing things like putting more sanctions on bad guys, and tightening up technology transfer to Russia and China, and then the world suddenly became a whole lot more complicated as some of the post-Cold War order started to disintegrate, and all of these things that Dr. Brzezinski and I had been working on when I was right out of right out of undergrad. Really started to come true, right? All through the course of the war on yes. terror and the beginning of the Obama administration. And so all of that international uncertainty had created a market for, unexpectedly, for all the stuff that I had been doing in government and that I'd been doing at Cambridge and that I'd been studying at Georgetown. And then Foley came along at one point and said, you know, we'd like to do some fun international stuff. Would you be interested in joining and helping us build a practice in this area?
0: Before you get there, I am curious. So, you know, it's no secret you started off at Baker Bots, you went to Sidley, eventually you joined Foley. You've been at Foley now for almost eight years. What was your practice when you first started? I'm just curious. What, what?
1: Oh, I, it was the painful, you know, document review, click the box. You <laughs> so <know>.
0: litigation.
1: <laughs> so, Baker's initially put me into their business department because they didn't Got know it. what to okay. do with me and then at sidley i joined what was at the time one of the premier international practices in the country it's still one of the premier international practices and i really learned i learned how to be a lawyer at baker i learned how to be an international lawyer at sidley and then i learned how to be an entrepreneurial team member at foley yep and if you if you look at each of those firms and their their, their unique personalities Everyone's got the good and the bad with every institution. The thing I learned from each of those institutions that was the best and the most valuable were those things. First, how to be a lawyer and provide superlative client service. That was top priority, at Bakers. At Sidley, it was know your brief, cold, technical expertise, absolutely have to have it. Even if some of the client interface may not be so eloquent, knowing your brief cold was really important. And then at Foley, Foley is about how do you build a team, you build a practice, and go out there and kill the problem. And so while the other places may have been more prestigious when you look at them from the outside, Foley is more fun. We get more, the work I do at Foley is more interesting because Foley lets us do the work. Uh, and that's been the fun piece.
0: And I want to hear more about that. You've touched on so many things that I think very much describe what your practice is, and you summarized it when we first started, but now let's really dive in. So I'm a client. What kind of problem do I have to have to need to talk to Christopher Swift?
1: Okay. So imagine you make products, right? You make electric components, and you sell those components around the world. And imagine you wake up one morning. And you go to the office, you get your cup of coffee, you go downstairs, you log onto your email, and then, you know, someone rings from the front and they say, there's two federal agents sitting outside. This happened to a client of mine about a year and a half ago. And the two federal agents, one is from the FBI, which everybody knows about, and the other is from an agency you've never heard of, one of the alphabet soup agencies here in town. The kinds of clients I support are the clients that have those unexpected visits from a federal agent who's asking, why are your components found in the wreckage of this Iranian missile strike in Saudi Arabia? And so we had a case this time last year, it was September, October last year, where Iran fired a bunch of missiles and drones at Saudi Arabia, bombed an oil field, shut down 5% of global oil production in 27 minutes. And our clients components with their name with the name of the company the address of the company and the serial number Were found in the wreckage of the iranian missiles And so immediately the us government is thinking our client is doing business with iran and not just with iran But with the iran islamic revolution guard corps, which is sort of the worst These are the people who are responsible for upholding the regime. These are the people that torture human rights Activists and you know do horrible terrible things and they're they're bad guys, to put it as simply as possible. And the U.S. government says you can't do business with them directly or indirectly. And you certainly can't sell them stuff that would be used in a weapon to attack, you know, another country. And so those are the kinds of clients that engage our team in this sort of very complicated, there's a front page New York Times story about that attack and the investigations the U.S. government launched into where did the Iranians get the technology to do this? The answer was our client among others and so we had sort of this year-long process where we had to do that tracing just like we did at treasury where we'd look at what bad guy you know was involved with what tribe that had what interface with what terrorist group and how was the money flowing we did the same thing for how did these components leave a client here in the united states and get all the way to the bad guys in iran and what did our client know about it at each stage in the process and was our client a perpetrator of essentially proliferation, technology proliferation that supported these, the Iranian military? Or was our client somehow a fraud victim? Did somebody somewhere along the lines to them about what they were doing? And we do a bunch of those cases every year where some bad thing happens in a place like Iran or Russia or North Korea or some blacklisted entities in China or other garden vacation spots around the world where bad things are happening to good people our clients get wrapped up in that and it's our job to investigate it and then unravel it so that we go from being a target of the government's investigation to being a witness which is mm-hmm. basically the business of being a white collar lawyer right you shift your client from target to witness and build the defenses to mitigate their mitigate their risk
0: well and i'm just thinking the the times we've had we've been able to speak your schedule sounds very interesting things obviously come on very sudden and you'll make a remark about so sorry I had a client call with X sort of, I don't know, computer, whatever happened or parts ended up here or it's all very interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we've we had some fun stuff. So one of the things that is good about the way Foley does this, a lot of law firms get really deep into stovepipes. You know, I have partners who are cybersecurity specialists. You know, I'm kind of a B student at cybersecurity, but we have some A plus students at cybersecurity. And so when we have a scenario where, a rogue state engages in uh, hostile cyber activity to hack one of our U.S. defense contractor clients and steal all the data, that is a U.S. government contracting issue. It is a cybersecurity issue, and you had better believe it is a national security issue. So we form teams around those problems, like little task forces around those problems, where you put everybody's skill sets together and you sort of figure out who's good at what and what part of the puzzle they'll take. And it's so much more fun to practice law that way, where you sort of have this horizontal team than it is to practice in that sort of old white shoe firm way where there's a strict hierarchy and only the partners allowed to talk, right? And and everyone else sort of labors at a lower level before it goes up. You know, that model dates back to World War One and the way the US Army was structured at World War One. That's not the world we live in anymore.
0: Right. That's not going to get the client the solution they need.
1: And it, it actually can interfere with the client's ability to understand and respond to the challenge.
0: Well, I could talk to you about your practice for a very, very long time, and I'm sure listeners are going to be upset with me that I'm not. But I have my two final questions for you. The first is one that, and you've probably heard this a lot too, but I have law students reach out to me. I will sometimes ask them, okay, what are you interested? What do you want to do? And I will get this vague, like, I want to do international law. hmm And I can't help, well, what do you mean? What is? And often I'm like, usually you have to go learn how to be good at something before you can do it internationally. But Chris, you are a true international law lawyer in many ways. What's your advice to somebody who your path or quote unquote international law, whatever that means, is something they're interested in? What do they need to do?
1: Yeah, so I had to study international law at both Cambridge and Georgetown. I had to study for my PhD and we had some very good people even though I had a political science PhD and it was my primary focus for seminars and stuff at Georgetown. That initial international law class that most folks run into in law school, it is kind of a useless class.
0: Is that not enough? I take that and then I can be an international
1: lawyer. Yeah, no, because look, international law is what states decide it's going to be. You can be an international lawyer without being a specialist in international law. Conversely, you can be a specialist in international law and be completely useless as an international lawyer. So instead of thinking about this as what credential do I need to have in order to be the person I want to be, right? It's better to say, or have a career I want to have. Credentialing doesn't really fit. It, you're better off at saying, what question can I ask, right? What problem can I solve that will teach me what I need to know? Because, you know, when we were in Cambridge, you know, and this is like one of the great universities of human history, it's just a really remarkable place. My wife calls it Hogwarts because we, you know, had the robes and everything. And it's just, it's the one place in the world where I felt completely normal from, from day one. Their approach to learning something new is to take you up to the 10 meter diving board, you know, the really high diving board to the Olympics, and just push you off the edge because they figure if you're a smart person and you work hard, you'll figure out how to swim. And a lot of being a lawyer, is asking the right question and then doing the hard work to get the answer and the experience. It's not a credential. It's not a certification. It's not a degree. It's not a school. It's not where you come from or what you look like. It is, are you asking the right questions? Are you putting in the work? And then most importantly, do you have a team of people that are willing to teach you what you don't know and sort of jump into the trench and work the issue with you? And one of the things that makes sort of Foley's approach to this stuff different from other firms is at least what I've tried to build in our practice is the everyone jumps in together and figures it out together. I tell the associates that work on my team I am more than happy to be wrong as long as our client wins and if you have a better way of solving the problem let's discuss it right. That's fantastic. my, My role as the partner is to teach you stuff to run interference with other partners so you can do your work and then to make sure we don't screw up when it comes to the client or talking to Uncle Sam. But that doing the work and asking the question, there's no substitute for that. To go do it. Yeah, just do it.
0: Fantastic advice. And you've, you've already said so many just wise and impactful recommendations for navigating one's career. In our last couple of minutes, is there anything else you would like to share that we either haven't touched on or general advice or reflections you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, it's a couple things. The first thing is it, Yeah, so going back to that conversation I had as a a 21-year-old, 20-year-old, 21-year-old with Justice Souter, you know, his real concern about the future of the legal profession was that it was focused on knowing what the answer was rather than asking the question, right? And that's part of why he said to me, I think these days I'd go and I'd get a PhD. I'd want to ask the right question first rather than just knowing the answer. Um, but his other concern was really this sort of this breakdown in the relationship between the profession and society more generally. And when he was talking to me about you know the the JD being a replacement for the MBA, right, or people treating it like it, the replacement from the MBA, his concern was that lawyers were no longer serving were no longer officers of the court, right? They were no longer serving the role of intermediating between people in society that had a problem and the institutions of government. There's a British scholar that I use when I'm teaching my international and national security law class at Georgetown um, who describes the purpose of law as being to resolve disputes and maintain order. And Justice Suda really came out of that same theory where the purpose of the lawyer is to be that intermediary that helps society and people within society resolve disputes and maintain order. And when we look at so much of what's happened to the legal profession, and if we look at what's happened to politics in the United States and race and class relations in the United States, and the sort of the devolution to the bottom in political life and political discourse, lawyers have a pretty important role to play, Mm -hmm. not in terms of having the right answer, but in terms of holding up, asking the right questions and holding up certain standards. And... You know, if there's one thing I would say to an associate who's starting at Foley or to a law student who's trying to find their way in this crazy world where everything seems to be on fire all the time is think about the role that a lawyer plays in stitching the fabric of society back together, right? resolving disputes and maintaining order, not being right, not winning, right? Obviously, you are an advocate, a zealous advocate for your client, but the role is bigger than the job. And that's hard to hard to recognize when you're a law student or a junior lawyer. It's sometimes really hard to recognize when you're a partner because there are so many pressures. But the role we play in society is just as important as what you know priests and doctors and military officers and other regulated professions do. Societies fail without us. But when we're active in society, we're really working those hard issues together, whether it is diversity, inclusion, whether it is national security, whether it is, you know, environmental justice, economic justice, you know, COVID-19, whatever, we have a role to play because we have the tools that allow people that don't normally talk with one another to come to the table and find a way forward.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. And my last question is if somebody has comments, questions, wants to reach out to you, is it okay if they find you on Foley's website and send you an email?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Chris. It was fantastic speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.